Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, We're here with Joni today. Joni, thanks for joining us. I'm going to turn it over to you right away. Um, Just wondering, how did you find yourself at Pride Stores? I was in my early 20s. I had already been through treatment um, starting at 18. I was in college and I learned of um, a friend of mine who was also in recovery and relapsing, went to Pride. And so... um, learning that there was an LGBTQ plus treatment facility, which I hadn't experienced before, um, was really exciting to me that um, I could be seen and feel safe um, being who I was. Amazing. And um, kind of going into a little bit of your background, you say you started um, looking at treatments around 18, 20. Well, I wasn't looking. Okay. (laughs) My parents um, and a psychologist were looking or sent me. And so my, you know, my recovery journey started at 18 and I was in four different placements back to back at that time for almost a year and a half, two years. So um, it was co-occurring, you know, issues. And so it was, uh, it was an early start to a um, really needed process. And so I guess leading up to your time in treatment, what I guess made your parents think that this was something that you needed? At that time, I was in college. Um, I had earned scholarship for athletics and for music both. Um, And then I had to make a decision um, while I was there because I couldn't do both anymore. And, um, And, you know, I was already struggling throughout high school with substance use, eating disorder, and um, suicidal stuff, depression. And my parents, before going to college, actually said, if you don't get it together, you're not going. Um, And so then I acted like I had it together. I I didn't. Um, And my substance use drastically increased. Um, and my depression as well. So um, I had a friend who was at a different college that um, I went to watch play basketball on a game, and um, she saw the wreckage that was me, um, and her mother worked with my mother and told my mother. And so they came to the college, picked me up, without my knowledge that knowing they're coming and um, the journey began the next day. So did the college environment kind of lead into, you know, your use or was it, it was already a problem before, before you got to college? Cause I know that environment is just really, you know, party heavy, drinking heavy, substance use heavy. And so do you think that escalated your, um, your story, your process of getting to that, you know, rock bottom, if you will? It absolutely escalated it because I didn't have um, that accountability of having to come home every night and pretending I had free reign of whatever usage I, I wanted, and, um, and it escalated 
drastically and very quickly. It was already a problem. It was already a significant problem. Um, meta yeah, it was already a significant problem, but it escalated um, to a beyond severe problem. Um, and then, of course, it's playing into the, the depression, um, which was also um, gender dysphoria, body dysphoria, eating disorder, depression, and suicidal ideation. So um, it just exploded while I was there. And that's so hard because I feel like when you go to college, I mean, they say there's dry and wet campuses and X, Y, and Z, but at that age, it's just so common and so not encouraged by the institution, but by the culture. And so to be in that demographic of knowing that there's an issue maybe for you and having to face that, like, in, I guess, like neon bright lights every single day is, is really hard was incredibly hard because everybody around me was using, but I was using an ex I mean, they were using in excess, but I remember one of my closest friends who was also on, you know, in sports, and she began having an eye on me every time that we would party because it just became such, oh, it just, be I, you know, once I started, there was no stopping. And it usually ended with, with some kind of me leaving and nobody knowing where I was because I would just get up and leave and um, or um, end up in some crisis. And it's funny, too, because I think a lot of people, you know, we hear uh, people come through pride and say, well, I just have a stopping problem. And our counselors are always like, no, you have a starting problem. <laughs> exactly. It's it's once once started, there is no stop. You know, it's that reward center, that primal part of us that is tricked. Well, it's that's just a layman's term, but it just it there is no stopping. That it, it becomes the most important thing. So you mentioned you had a little bit of a gender identity crisis. Um, well, you know, all this other all this other stuff was going on. Will you talk a little bit about, you know, you're coming to um, with who you are and if that, you know, how do you, an intersection with you using? Well, you know, as a young person, I always wanted to be a boy um, or thought that I fit better with the boys. And I was very, very envious of the boys, wanted to dress like the boys, play like the boys. Um, and, you know, I was put in a dress and hated it. It didn't didn't feel right. It was it didn't feel right. Um, finally, luckily, my parents kind of understood, even though they didn't tell me <laughs> when I was in pride, I came out to them um, and my I remember being very, very nervous. And well, the first time I was in pride, I don't know if you knew I was in twice. Um, but the first time I was in Pride, coming out to them, I wrote them a letter. I sent it and then I had a phone call and and. My parents, when talking to them, well, my mother said, well, honey, we've known this since you were nine. Um, I came out to them as lesbian um, because that's what I identified as, was lesbian. I identify as queer, um, non-binary, and because I really don't want to be a male, but I don't also feel like a female. Um, I... I feel like both. <laughs> um, I don't want to transition to male. That's not my my goal um, ever. But I also do not identify as full female. 
and never have ever. And so luckily, you know, my parents still see me, I'm, I'm not out to my parents in regards to non-binary. Um, they have accepted me as, you know, a lesbian and um, my family has always accepted outwardly anyway. And I have extended relatives who've been great. Um, and then some that haven't. But uh, so coming out for me, I was grateful that my parents were like, well, honey, we know this. Yeah. Uh, and we've known since you were nine. Um, so that was my coming out process. Uh, I knew long before that I didn't come out to them. I brought, you know, females home um, and I identified, you know, I introduced them as my friend. But, you know, my roommate, they knew. They knew. So do you think that, you know, process of you finding yourself coming to terms with who you are perpetuated your use? Or do you think it uh, was um, that's right. just, uh, you know, just coincidence that both were happening? So I was really thin, skinny, did not develop early. I developed late. Um, so I looked like a boy till I was like ninth grade and I was an athlete. and. Um, when I started developing breasts and started being, getting heavier because I was maturing, um, it sent me into a panic. Um, I didn't want breasts. I didn't want hips. I didn't want to be heavy. I wanted to look like a boy. I wanted to be. And so what happened is then I just thought, okay, I'm just going to diet. And I'm going to work out because I'm going to be the best athlete in the school. That was my, you know, I was so obsessed with that. Um, but I was more obsessed with changing my body. And I recognized that it wasn't just about being thin because I knew that then it wasn't just about being thin. Um, it was about um, the gender dysphoria that I did not um, feel comfortable in my own skin and my body at all. And so the substance use started, um, well, the substance use even started before that. Um, I knew as an 10-year-old, I was attracted to um, that life. And I started, you know, my first drunk was when I was 10. Uh, my first um, smoking weed, I was 12. And then I started using amphetamines um, as a, you know, one I enjoyed them, but I also thought that it would help me lose weight. And alcohol would make me fat. So that was... Sometimes I drink alcohol, but it was mostly um, amphetamines. That was my drug of choice. And that escalated to, you know, cocaine and um, to keep me thin, to keep me small. Um, because if I was heavier, then I would have bigger breasts. That's the truth. And I didn't feel comfortable. And I know that that's a really, really common thing in this community of people. And so thank you so much for sharing that. I'm interested because you said you're an athlete and a lot of times in you know college, that's a protective factor against going out and partying. And sometimes it's not, but um, oftentimes athletes are, you know, tested and on a more, you know, consistent basis than the regular population. You, however, did not find that to be the case. So, uh, being an athlete in college was not a barrier to your use. I started out in college as an athlete, mm -hmm. um, and I chose to go then into music and stop athletics because mm -hmm. I couldn't do both. Mm -hmm. 
um, because music was also a huge passion of mine. And when that decision was made, it crushed me because athletics were also <laughs> like what kept me driven too. Um, but my use escalated when I stopped playing. I was still using, especially amphetamines. I wasn't drinking as much, although on the weekends I would. Um, when I was um, going to practice and, and playing, but then it, I chose to, because I would have to do both, and it was just, you know, and I was ex excelling at both, especially music. I was going to do this big thing I'd gotten chosen to do in Florida, and um, I needed to rehearse more for that, and um, so I had to make that decision. I'm gathering that you put a lot of weight on your shoulders growing up because I hear you were like the star athlete here. Now you're a star musician who's granted like fellowships or scholarships elsewhere. I wonder if that played into your substance use at all, do you think? Or did, where, did, where did that come from, that just pressure to be, I guess, the best or number one? I have a really high achieving family academically. Um, my brothers, um, I had a brother who won, I mean, science fairs all the way to the international level. Brilliant. <laughs> um, he's just very successful, all of them. And I have a trauma surgeon brother, um, both of my parents, you know, professional people and, and um, you know, successful. And I was one of the younger ones. I had a younger sister, but everybody always thought she was older than me because she's bigger than me. Um, and I was creative and athletic and wiry and hyper and um, got in trouble and like to be, and was impulsive. And so I got in trouble um, quite a bit because of that. And my other siblings seemed to be, have a little more control of their behavior. And so I, I don't know, I just, I don't, it's hard to know what, you know, I just really was passionate about what I liked and I was, there were some things that I was good at and maybe, I don't know, I wanted to do well. I just wanted to do well and um, still want to do well, um, but not obsess about it. I'm not obsessed about it anymore. But I think it was because, you know, I didn't think I lived up to my brother, especially academically. Um, they were just superior. Yeah, I know I can relate to that. There's times where I find like the competitive spirit come out of me where I feel like I have to be number one because if I'm not number one, I'm last. And I know that that's something that's really common in our community because in a way, I think for me growing up, it was like my receipt that I matter. It was like my way of like, okay, I might run like a girl, but I also scored more goals than me this game because I was also an athlete and who was obsessive. And yeah, so your story really resonates with me in that way. Well, and not even having that insight as a kid, um, you know, knowing now as an adult, uh, yeah, that's what made me count. If I did well in a game or if I sang well or acted well, played well, that meant I mattered maybe. Um, because then you get praise, external praise. You know, you mm -hmm. learn that external affirmation um, rather than developing that internal affirmation that I'm good enough as, you know, is Joni, um, but with 
with not being okay in my own body, I didn't feel good enough with not feeling right and not knowing what it was exactly, even though I had an inkling um, in high school and younger than that. Um, it wasn't acceptable at that time, you know, I'm a lot older than both of you. And so it wasn't as acceptable, um, especially in the schools. You know, we didn't have that inclusion at all. And if I, if you're not dating, it's like, what's wrong with you? You're like dating the opposite sex. It's, um, even though I didn't care, I was too involved in other things. <laughs> so with that, I want to backtrack a little bit to um, when did you figure out that you were gender non-binary? Because I know that that term is more, you know, common now, and, and we all know what that is now. Um, but what was that process like for you growing up? And when did you come to that? I came to it several years ago. Um, once, you know, it became, you know, it's not because of, oh, it's popular. You know, that's, mm -hmm. um, in fact, I didn't share a lot with a lot of people about it, just my partner. I'm talking about, um, you know, this is what feels right for me, that it's not that I would necessarily, because I have, you know, really close friends that um, I've watched transition, that are in transition from female to male, um, and, and I am not attracted to that. That doesn't, that's not who I feel like I am. So just allowing myself to sit with that non-binary identity, it just feels right to the core that I don't, I don't feel fully female and I don't feel fully male. I feel both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's, and so for me, it's just been more, you know, several years, but more in the past year that I've been more verbal about it. And I've asked people to call me Jay, um, they as a pronoun, but not everybody have I, you know, shared that with. Um, I often sign my emails Jay a lot, um, but just Jay, not J-A-Y or any J-A-E mm -hmm. or anything. It's just Jay. Just keep it simple. Yeah. Like that. So we talked a lot about your history, um, and you mentioned you've been to you went to through Pride twice. Um, what happened within you know the first time, and then the second time? What happened uh, in that in that in between? What led you back? Um, so I had decades. I had twenty years of recovery before I came back. Um, it's because in that, and this is my belief, I didn't deal with trauma. I, they didn't, they, I never dealt with trauma and I relapsed um, due to un, um, unaddressed trauma, complex PTSD. I think that's really common, uh, especially with our community. We always say trauma, 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 except all the roads lead right back to trauma. And that's, you know, why we see a lot of our clients a few times because unaddressed. Um, then fast forwarding to today, what do you do to maintain sobriety? How are you able to sit here and tell us about your history and, you know, move forward with, with your life in recovery? So I um, go to two meetings a week still, 
all through COVID, you know, online and Zoom. Um, I meet with my sponsor once a week on Zoom. Um, during the summer and spring, I met in a park for so to, I was going to three meetings a week. NA, I do NA, and um, and I do step work still. I have two sponsees, and um, I also work in the field. And so working in the field is meaningful to me. Um, it reminds me of um, the journey and my purpose um, in showing up for others and helping others um, learn how to do this and help them um, and guide them and support them. I also am an avid mountain biker, huge mountain biker. Um, I'm a kayaker and I um, love to camp, but not the, not the car camping. I want to, <laughs> I want to backpack and paddle to where I'm going to the bush. Not a so yeah, I'm not a glint, although my partner is, um, well, she likes the Hilton. So um, <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I like the Hilton, mm-hmm. um, but I also like the challenge of being in a, you know, on the lake or on the river when it's raining out and um, I have to find a place to camp. I, I enjoy a challenge and I want to mountain bike where it's challenging. I'm, I, my partner um, believes that if it's one rock on the f- ground and she went over it, that's mountain biking. <laughs> and I'm just in endearment, in endearment. This is not judgment. It's, it's funny, but I want to be on a tough course where I'm getting there. And a lot of declines. I hate the going uphill. That's hard, but I will do it just so I can come back down. Yeah. And I will go. I love going. Like I just I did an Arkansas trip in January, and um, Utah and um, Upper Peninsula of Michigan has great um, mountain biking. Minnesota has great mountain biking too. So. So those you know, and I'm also a musician. So. Um, I play every weekend at practice. Um, I work really long hours during the week, so sometimes at night when I come home late, I will play the guitar, but I continue to write music, um, hoping someday to do another CD and uh, perform again once COVID is, you know, um, you know allowing us to do that. Um, but music is, is also my heart, definitely. That's incredible. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. I appreciate you asking me. Yeah, thanks for uh, sharing and thanks for uh, being so candid with us. I love when people get into, you know, the deep stuff. And it's just really amazing that you're willing to share that with us. So we appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. For more information about our services, please call 952-522-5683 visit pride-institute.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.